Monday, Chicken Fingers, Chapter 1, Ravi. Most people in America cannot pronounce my name. On the first day at my new school, my teacher, Mrs. Bean, is brave enough to try. Sir Yan Ye Nay, she says, her eyebrows twitching as she attempts to sound it out. Sir Ri Nan, I say slowly. She tries again, but it is no better. I'm going to have to work on that. She says with a laugh. I laugh too. Suriane Rianan is my surname. My first name is Ravi. It's pronounced Ravi, with a soft ra and a strong v. In Sanskrit, it means the sun. In America, people call me Ravi, with a stress on the first syllable. That doesn't mean anything. Patience is a virtue, Amma reminds me often. She believes that with time, people will learn how to say our names correctly. My grandmother tells her not to hold her breath. We moved to Hamilton, New Jersey a few months ago, May 13th to be exact. I am fresh off the boat, as they say. My father got a promotion at his IT company in Bangalore, so they transferred him to America. In India, Amma, Appa, and I had our own house with a cook and a big garden. We even had a driver to take us wherever we needed to go. My grandparents lived in their own flat nearby. Now, we all live together in a townhouse, in a place called Hamilton Muse. Things are very different here in America. Appa takes the train to work. We don't have a cook anymore, so Emma has to prepare all the meals herself. Our new house is much smaller than the old one. There is only one bathroom upstairs, which I share with my grandparents. I wouldn't mind so much, except that Paripa likes to take long showers, and Parima leaves her teeth in a glass by the sink at night. I learned to speak English when I was very young. We speak mostly English at home, and I went to an English medium school, but for some reason, people here in New Jersey have trouble understanding me when I speak. I'm trying to learn how to swirl my tongue to sound more American. My grandmother doesn't like it. Be proud of who you are and remember where you came from, she tells me. If you're not careful, you'll turn into one of them. Your grandfather didn't slave in the tea plantations so that his only grandson would become some rude, overweight, beef-eating cowboy. I don't think Parima likes America. My school in India was called Vidya Mandir, which means Temple of Knowledge. My new school is called Albert Einstein Elementary. Parima could hardly wait to show off to all her friends at home that her grandson had been accepted to a school named after a scientific genius. I'm not a scientific genius, but I am a very good student. My favorite subjects are math, English, and sports, especially cricket. Boys and girls, please welcome our new student, Ravi, Mrs. Beam says after she has taken the roll call. He's come to us all the way from India. Isn't that exciting? Mrs. Beam is short and round. When she smiles, her eyebrows touch each other. As I look around the room, a sea of mostly white faces stare back at me. I feel a little nervous. It is my first day of fifth grade in room 506, and I am the only Indian in my class. There is another, a boy named Dylan Samreen, but he doesn't count. He is an ABCD, American-born confused Desi. Desi is the Hindi word for Indian. I can tell Dylan is an ABCD, because he speaks and dresses more like an American than an Indian.
Tell us something about yourself, Ravi," Mrs. Beam says, smiling at me. "Yes, ma'am," I say, standing at attention. Everyone laughs. Mrs. Beam claps her hands. "Boys and girls, where are your manners?" she asks. "Go on, Ravi. We're listening." I push up my glasses and continue. "My name is Ravi Suryarianan, and I just shifted from Bangalore." Everyone laughs again. "What's so funny?" I wonder. Mrs. Beam claps her hands. Her eyebrows are twitching like mad. Boys and girls, is this how we welcome a new student to Albert Einstein? The room gets quiet. The spotlight is on me. I can feel the whole class staring. This is my first day of school in America, and things are not going well. Mrs. Beam turns to me. You can call me Mrs. Beam, she says softly. And Ravi. Here in America, students don't need to stand up when the teacher calls on them. Do you understand? Of course I do. I push up my glasses and rub my nose. It's something I do when I'm nervous. Mrs. Bean comes over to my desk. She has a look of pity on her face. Don't worry, Ravi. She says, patting me on the shoulder. You can introduce yourself to the class later, after you've had a little time to work on your English. We have a very nice teacher named Mrs. Frost in the resource room. I'm sure she can help you. I want to say, number one, my English is fine. Number two, I don't need Miss Frost. Number three, I was top of my class at Vidya Mandir. But here is what I do instead. Number one, push up my glasses. Number two, rub my nose. Number three, sit down and fold my hands. My friends and teachers at Vidya Mandir would have a good laugh if they could see me now. Their star student taken for an idiot. What a joke! Mrs. Beam is writing out our homework on the board. I open my notebook and carefully copy down the assignment. Out of the corner of my eye, I see Dylan Samarin staring at me. He looks like a movie star straight out of Bollywood. His long, shiny black hair falls over one eye. With a quick jerk of his head. He shakes it away, then he smiles and winks at me. I smile back. Dylan Samarin may be an A B C D, but I think he wants to be my friend. Chapter two, Joe. My name is Joe, but that's not what most people call me. Not at Einstein, anyway. I've never been a big fan of school, except for lunch. Eating is one thing I'm really good at. I've always been tall for my age, but lately. I've been growing so fast, my clothes won't fit anymore, even the ones we bought a few weeks ago. I'm always hungry. A lot of kids wouldn't be caught dead eating school lunch. They call it mystery meat and slop, but I don't mind. Every week it shows up in the same order: chicken fingers, hamburgers, chili, macaroni and cheese, pizza. By the way, it's not a coincidence that Tuesday is Burger Day and Wednesday is Chili Day, because at Einstein. Hamburgers get recycled. It's not as bad as it sounds. The leftover burgers from Tuesday get dumped into a big pot with beans and some other junk, and presto changeo! On Wednesday, you've got chili. Everybody knows I don't talk much at school. My best friends, Evan and Ethan, used to call me blabbermouth as a joke, but I guess I'm not going to be hearing that much now, since they both moved away over the summer. To be honest, they were a little weird. But I'm going to miss them anyway. Evan, Ethan, and I ate lunch together every single day last year, and they had to go to the resource room for extra help 
same as me. Not that we had the same problems. For one thing, they were both super hyper, and I'm not. This year, I'll have to go by myself to see Miss Frost, and I'm not sure who I'm going to eat lunch with. Probably no one. People think you're unfriendly if you don't talk to them, but they don't understand that it's a problem for me that it's so noisy in the cafeteria. My brain and noise don't get along. Last year, I had Mr. Barnes for my teacher. Mr. Barnes was epic. He can bounce a hacky sack off his knee a hundred times without messing up. I had never even heard of a hacky sack until Mr. Barnes brought his to school. It was pink, which Dylan Samreen thought was hilarious. He said something mean about it behind Mr. Barnes's back, and all the girls laughed. Sometimes I wonder what's wrong with girls, but then I remember I already know what's wrong with girls. Everything. Mr. Barnes is African American. He shaves his head and wears bow ties—real ones you have to tie yourself. He must have talked to Miss Frost about me, because he never asked me to read out loud in front of the class or come up to the board to do math problems. He understood those things are hard for kids like me. Some people don't mind having everybody looking at them. Dylan Samreen, for instance, he wears his pants pulled down low, with his underwear sticking out the top. He wants people to see it. His boxers have dollar signs on them, or dice, or lobsters, and he has special ones for holidays too, with candy corn or Christmas trees or red hearts for Valentine's Day. Dylan is famous for his boxers, but his real claim to fame is his tongue, which is long and pointy like a devil's. When he sticks it out, it makes the girls scream. He thinks he's the smartest kid at Einstein, and he might be right. He's definitely the meanest. Sometimes I wonder what it would be like to be Dylan Samreen, but that is something I'll never know. Mr. Barnes was the first teacher I ever had who liked me. Miss Frost likes me, but she likes everybody, so it doesn't count. On my final report card, Mr. Barnes wrote that I was a valuable member of the community. My mom was so proud she stuck it on the refrigerator with a magnet. It's still there. Today is the first day of school. And Mr. Barnes is the first person I run into when I get here. He's wearing a red bow tie with little blue whales on it. I'm pretty sure it's new, or at least I've never seen it before. Last year, Mr. Barnes had seventeen different bow ties that he always wore in the same order, starting with the green one with white diamonds and ending with the orange and purple striped one. Mr. Barnes's bow ties were another one of my favorite sequences. Yo, Joe, he says. How's it feel to be a fifth grader? Good, I tell him. At least so far. Maybe this year will be different. I think. Maybe Dylan Samreen won't be in my class. But when I get to room five o six, there he is, standing over by the windows with his underwear hanging out, polka dots. Lucy Mulligan and a bunch of her annoying girlfriends are standing around him, chanting, "Do it! Do it! Do it!" They want him to stick out his tongue, but Dylan won't. Come on, Samreen. Let's give 'em what they want. Tom Dinkins shouts before sticking out his own tongue and whacking it at the girls. Tom Dinkins is a Dylan Samreen wannabe. The girls don't care about his tongue. I warn you, Dylan tells his fan club. I think it grew a little over the summer. Lucy and her friends start jumping up and down, screaming, "Ew!" One thing I will say about Dylan Samreen: 
He really knows how to play a crowd. All the screaming starts to get to me, so I do the in two three, out two three. Breathing Miss Frost taught me. If that doesn't work, I'll have to use my earplugs. I always keep a pair in my pocket just in case. They come in different colors, but I like the tan ones best because they don't show as much. They're made out of some kind of squishy foam rubber, and when I wear them, I can still hear people talking. Only it's softer. Like when you're underwater or have a pillow over your head, I'm allowed to wear my earplugs in school whenever I want. But mostly, I use them in the cafeteria, on the playground, and in gym class. Settle down and take your seats," announces Mrs. Beam, my new teacher. This is her first year teaching at Einstein, and she looks a lot younger than any of the other teachers I've had. She's shaped kind of funny, wider on the bottom than the top, and she's shorter than me. Which is weird, considering that she's my teacher. She seems nervous, and there's something freaky about her eyebrows. At Einstein, kids have to sit in alphabetical order. Every year since kindergarten, my seat has been right beside Dylan's. I know the back of his head by heart. Mrs. Beam had made name cards for us to put them on the desks, but when I go to take my seat behind Dylan, somebody's already sitting in it. He's a shrimpy-looking kid with thick glasses and greased-down black hair parted on the side. I've never seen him before, and I'm not sure where he's from. His skin is darker than mine, but not as dark as Dylan's or Caleb Burrell's. When I look at the cards sitting on his desk, I see his name is about a mile long and full of Y's and A's. He seems kind of nervous too. He keeps rubbing his nose and looking down at his hands, which are folded in his lap like he's in church or something. His shirt is so white it hurts my eyes to look at it, and he's got it tucked in and buttoned up all the way to the top. When Mrs. Beam asks him to tell the class about himself, he stands up like he's in the army and calls her "ma'am," which is about the only word he says that you can actually understand. Everybody starts laughing, and for a minute I think, "Hey, maybe fifth grade isn't going to be so bad after all. Maybe Dylan Semery will decide to pick on this new kid." With a weird name and the funny accent instead of me. Chapter three, Ravi. Mrs. Beam tells us we are going to play some games called icebreakers. I can already tell that school in America is going to be easy for me. At Vidya Mandir, we never played games during class. On my first day of fourth grade, my teacher, Mrs. Arun, gave us a test. The first game Mrs. Beam teaches us is called fruit salad. I'm on the team called bananas, and Dylan is on the apples. Another game is called wink murder. In this game, one person is the murderer, and he or she has to knock people out by winking at them. I find this game a bit confusing, because even when Dylan is not the one chosen to be the murderer, he still winks at me. The last game we play is called Ven Friends. For this game, Mrs. Beam assigns us partners. I hope that she will put me with Dylan Samreen. But instead, my partner is a pale, skinny girl called Emily Mooney. You'll have a few minutes to interview each other, Mrs. Beam explains. Find out as much as you can about your partner. For instance, what kind of music does he or she like? What is his or her favorite food or sport? When you finish your interviews, you'll create a Venn diagram showing all the things you have in common. What the heck? says a red-haired boy with freckles. He doesn't know what a Venn diagram is. So Mrs. Beam had to explain it. At Vidya Mandir, 
We learn how to make Venn diagrams in third grade. Each of you must draw a circle and fill it with a list of things that your partner enjoys, Mrs. Beam says. Then, you and your partner will draw two overlapping circles. Where the circles intersect, you'll make a list of all the things you've discovered you have in common. At first, I think this will be an easy game for me. But every time I try to ask Emily Mooney a question, she giggles and says, What? Then, when I try to answer her questions, she does the same thing. Appa says that someday I will be interested in girls, but that day has definitely not come yet. When Mrs. Beam calls time, the only thing Emily Mooney and I have found to place in the intersection of our diagram is that we are both in room 506, and that was my idea. I'm glad when Mrs. Beam tells us it's time to get ready for lunch. At Vidya Mandir, our lunch period began at 1 o'clock. Fifth graders at Albert Einstein Elementary School eat lunch at 11.30 in the morning. When I get to the lunchroom, the first thing I do is look for Dylan Samreen. In India, my best friend, Pramod, and I always ate lunch together. Afterwards, we'd play cricket in the field behind the school. I spot Dylan standing in the queue waiting to buy his lunch. They are serving something I have never heard of before, called chicken fingers. Most of the tables are filling up quickly but I spot an empty table on the opposite side of the lunchroom and sit down. While I wait for Dylan to join me, I carefully lay out the cloth napkin that my mother packed for me, neatly folded with a spoon tucked into it. I'm not feeling very hungry, but Amma will be upset if I don't eat the lunch she made me. Apuma made me pure desi ghee, she said, as she stirred the pot this morning. Semolina will give you plenty of energy for your first day of school, Ravi. Too lumpy, Prima criticized, looking over my mother's shoulder as she cooked. I'm just getting ready to open my stainless steel tiffin box when Dylan Samreen walks by carrying his tray. I caught a glimpse of his underwear earlier in class. There are red dots on it. I think about my own underwear, clean white hands from Kohl's that my mother insists on ironing. There's no way I would ever let my underwear hang out like that, whatever kind of underwear is called. I thought Dylan and I would sit lunch together today, but instead, he goes and sits down at a table in the corner by the window with some of the other boys. I had been looking forward to having a good laugh with him about Mrs. Beam suggesting that I need special help, but it's okay, I'm not worried. I'm sure that Dylan and I are going to be friends. He's been smiling and winking at me all morning. A big white kid with yellow hair and a wrinkled shirt comes and puts his tray down at the other end of my table. He doesn't say hello to me, just sits down on the bench. He's so big the table shakes and my tiffin box jumps. I recognize him as the guy who sits behind me in class, but I don't remember his name. He doesn't seem very friendly. He picks up his fork and starts shoving food into his mouth and doesn't stop eating until his plate is clean. I think maybe he forgot to eat breakfast. And what's that he's got in his ears? I'm feeling a little hungry now, too. I spread the napkin on my lap and bend down, sniffing at the upuma. Perimo was wrong. It's perfect, not lumpy at all. So I gobble it down quickly. I need to wash my hands and rinse my mouth, but for some reason, there isn't any sink in the lunchroom. I look at my watch. I still have 10 minutes left until the bell rings, so I tuck the spoon back into the napkin, place it in my tiffin box, and buckle the lid. 
As I'm on my way out of the lunchroom to wash up in the boys' bathroom, a roar of laughter comes from the table in the corner by the window. Dylan Semery must have made a good joke, because everyone is laughing and slapping him on the back and treating him like he's a hero. I smile to myself. I know exactly how it feels to be that guy. I know something else, too. Tomorrow, I will not be eating my lunch alone. I will be sitting at the table in the corner by the window, right next to Dylan Samreen. Chapter 4. Joe. It's Monday, so the cafeteria is serving chicken fingers with canned peas and apple slices. I had a big breakfast, and it's only 8.30, but I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. For real. I'd go through the line as fast as I can. Ethan and Evan and I used to eat at the round table near the milk machine, but things are different now. I have to lie low. After I pay for my food, I carry my tray over to the other side of the cafeteria, keeping my head down the whole time. So far, so good. There's a long table against the back wall. Nobody ever sits there because it's near the trash cans. Fifth grade has the first lunch period, though, so I figure the smell won't be too bad. I sit down, put in my earplugs, and inhale everything on my plate in about three seconds. I'm still hungry, but I don't want to take any chances by going back for more. As I'm sucking down the last of my chocolate milk, I notice someone sitting all the way down at the under end of the table. It's that shrimpy new kid from my class, the one with the big glasses and the long name who sits in front of me. He's got this weird-looking lunchbox open in front of him, and he's eating something that looks like scrambled eggs. Robert Princeton fellow walks by and accidentally bumps my shoulder. At least, its I think it's an accident. Robert is another Dylan Samreen wannabe. The difference between him and Tom Dinkins is that Robert isn't mean when he's on his own. Sorry about that putty tat, he says, and keeps going. My name is Joe Sylvester, but thanks to Dylan Samreen, I am known at school as Putty Tat. It's on account of that thing that Tweety Bird always says to Sylvester the Cat in the old Looney Tunes cartoons. You know, I taught I taught Putty Tat. I wish people would call me Joe, but when Dylan Samreen decides he's going to call you something, whether you like it or not, that's what everyone else is going to call you. So at school, I am Putty Tat. Putty, or Pud for short. Giving a person a nickname is a way of saying you like them my mother said when she found out about it. Trust me, I told her. Dylan Samreen doesn't like me. What's not to like? She asked, kissing the top of my head. She always does stuff like that, which is why we had to have that big talk this morning. Pretend you don't even know me, I told her, and promise you won't do any of your corny mom stuff. I promise, she said, then made an X over her heart with her finger. We'll see, I thought. The new kid is busy eating his lunch, and I'm done with mine, so I just sit there for a while watching Dylan Samreen. I do that a lot, not because I want to, but because I have to. One time in second grade, when I put my jacket down on a bench out on the playground, Dylan filled the pockets with dirt. Another time, he slipped one of those little packets of ketchup in my homework folder and pounded on it with his fist to make it pop. He's always grabbing the back of my shirt or trying to punch or trip me when nobody's looking. His favorite thing of all is to sneak up behind me and make a loud noise, because he knows how much that freaks me out. It wasn't until last year that I realized Dylan was a klepto. His parents are loaded, so he doesn't need the stuff he steals. 
He just does it for fun. He'll take anything he can get his hands on. A pencil sharpener, a glove, a retainer case, it doesn't matter. Whatever it is, he shoves it down the front of his pants for safekeeping. Since I never take my eyes off him, I've seen him do this a million times. But I don't ever tell on him, because what good would that be? He'd just fast-talk his way out of it and find a way to pay me back double. After my mom found the dirt in my pockets, she suspected something might be going on. Is that Samarine boy bothering you? She asked. No, Mom, I lied. We can talk to Miss Frost about it, she suggested. No, I shouted. Everything's fine. I worry about you, Joey. You never have anyone over to the house. I have lots of friends at school, I told her. Like who? Ethan and Evan. The Burdock twins, she'd said. Those boys are so wild. She didn't know the half of it. Ethan once stole his father's car keys and drove around the neighborhood in his pajamas. And even though Evan never got caught, I knew for a fact that he was the bathroom bandit of Einstein, notorious for drawing dirty pictures on the bathroom walls and throwing wet toilet paper balls on the ceiling. Dylan and his buddies are busy yucking it up so I figure it's a good time for me to go empty my tray. I guess the new kid must have left when I wasn't looking, because he and his funny-looking lunchbox are gone now. I pick up my tray and make it as far as the trash cans before my luck runs out. Hey, Pud. Dylan comes over to me and puts his arm around my shoulders. How's it going? My heart starts pounding, and I feel myself go wet under the arms. Dylan Samreen is like one of those crocodiles you see on the Discovery Channel, lurking underwater with just his eyes showing, waiting to grab anything dumb enough to come within his reach. I'm good, I say, trying to duck out from under his arm. He tightens his grip onto my left shoulder, and with his other hand, pulls the earplug out of my right ear, drops it on the floor, and crushes it with his shoe like a bug. In two, three, out two, three. Listen, Pud. Before you go, can I ask you something? He says. I guess so. I look down at my shoes. It feels weird having only one earplug in. Lopsided. Is it my imagination, or does that new lunch monitor look familiar? Dylan puts his mouth so close to my ear it makes me squirm. I don't say anything. Just keep my eyes glued to my shoes and breathe. In two, three, out two, three. I notice one of my shoelaces has come untied. Take a look, Puddy, says Dylan, jerking his head back to shake the air, hair out of my eyes. Tell me if you recognize her, too. I don't move. Oh, was that question too hard for you, Pud? You need me to talk a little slower? Take a look. I don't want to look, but what choice do I have? I lift my head. My mom is standing over near the milk machine. She's wearing a red and white striped apron and has a whistle around my neck. When she sees me looking at her, she smiles and blows me a kiss. I honestly think I might be having a heart attack. This is exactly what I was afraid would happen. It's the whole reason we had the big talk. My face feels like it's on fire. Come on, Pud, says Dylan. You don't want to hurt her feelings, do you? Blow her a kiss back. What's going on, Dill? asks Tom Dinkins. He and Robert and this weird kid Jax have come over to empty their trays. Pud is about to blow a kiss to his mommy, the lunch monitor, and then she's going to change his poopy diaper. Tom laughs. 
What the heck? says Jax. No kidding, Putty. Is that really your mom? asks Robert. The bell rings, making me jump. Suddenly, everybody starts rushing around, cleaning up and getting ready to go back to class. Dylan grins and winks at me, then lets go of my shoulder and walks away. He's done with me for now, but I'm not stupid enough to think it's over. My knees are shaking, but I manage to dump my tray and get out of there as fast as I can. The rest of the afternoon is a total waste of time. Mrs. Beam calls on me twice, even though my hand isn't up. It's only the first day of school and fifth grade already sucks. Chapter 5. Ravi The questions begin as soon as I step out of bus number 7A. How was your first day of school at Robert Albert Einstein Elementary School, Ravi? My mother asks. Did you make any new friends? Do you have homework? Was the bathroom clean? How many other Indians are in your class? Asks Parima. Amma and Parima have been waiting for me at the bus stop. I could see them stretching their necks to find me, even before the doors had opened. Amma takes my green backpack off my shoulder and carries it as we begin to walk towards our townhouse. I would rather carry it myself, but she insists. My teacher's name is Mrs. Bean, I tell them. Homework is just some reading, and the bathroom is fine. How many other Indians are in your class? Prima asks again. None, I say. I don't tell her about Dylan Samreen, because I know how Parima feels about ABCDs. As we pass the big pond located in the middle of our community, Amma points to it. Promise me you won't go near that water, Ravi. You might fall in and drown, and I've heard there are leeches, warns Parima. The wind is blowing their saris. Amma holds onto hers with her right hand. Her left hand is still carrying my backpack. Did you eat your lunch? She asks. Please, Amma, can we first get home? I will tell you everything, I say. I promise. Why can't you tell us now? Asks Parima. Did you not like the umpia, Ravi? Don't blame me. Didn't I say it was too lumpy? When Parima wants to make a point, she goes on and on about it, like at the rotating end of an electric drill. Parima has a trick for that. He wears hearing aids. And when Parima gets going on to one of her long rants, he waits until she's not looking. Then he turns them off. Amma puts down my backpack. I can't believe what is happening. Right there, in the middle of the street, she is checking my tiffin box to prove to Parima that I've eaten my lunch. A few kids walk by, looking at us curiously. I bend my head, embarrassed, and stare at the spot between my sneakers. My glasses slip down my nose, and I push them back up. It's empty, says Parima proudly, holding the box out for my grandmother to see. Parima sniffs. How do you know he didn't throw the lunch away? Amma doesn't say anything. She just shakes her head and puts the tiffin box back in my backpack. She and Prima got along much better, when they didn't live in the same house. I run over and grab my backpack from Amma, then run as fast as I can towards number 83. When we first moved to Hamilton Mews, I had trouble telling which house was ours, because they all looked the same, but now I can tell without even looking at the number. Wait, Ravi, the door is locked. Prepa is napping and Appa is at the office, my mother shouts, running after me, keys waving. I wait on the doorstep until she and Parima catch up with me and open the door. As we enter the house, I close my eyes and breathe in. The air is filled with the smell of Amma's cooking. She has already prepared my evening tiffin, 
a plate of dosas, and a cup of Ovaltine. The same thing I ate every day after school in India. I give her a hug and whisper in her ear so Prima won't hear. The opuma was delicious. Thank you, Raja, she whispers back. Dinner is later than usual because Appa's train is delayed and he doesn't get home until almost 8 o'clock. After each bite, Prima complains about the food. The rasam is too runny and it tastes like dishwater. Have you ever heard of spices, Roshni? Appa comes to my mother's defense. Let her be, he tells Prima. Roshni is doing her best. She's not used to having to do all the cooking herself. And I am not used to having to eat her runny rasam. Prima snaps back at him. Did you know poor Ravi had to eat only lumpy upuma for his lunch? I glance at my mother and quickly change the subject. Most people at Albert Einstein Elementary School don't bring their lunches from home, I say. They buy a school lunch, which costs $2.50. Is it vegetarian? asks Sama. I wouldn't take their word for it. Prima interrupts before I can answer. I hear their salad oil has lard in it. I decide not to tell them about the chicken fingers. Chapter 6 Joe Mom is parked at the curb, waiting in the car when school lets out. Her old parking sticker from Mersey Hospital is still stuck to the windshield. She used to be a nurse there, but she and a bunch of other nurses got laid off right before Christmas last year. After that, everything changed. None of the other hospitals around here were hiring nurses, so Mom had to go on unemployment and Dad took a job driving a truck route because it paid more than he was making at his old job at Walmart. At the end of August, when Mom found out Einstein was looking for a new lunch monitor, she applied for the job without even asking me first. Hop in, she tells me now, leaning out the window. No, I answer, too mad to even look at her. I'm sorry, Joe, she says. It was an accident, force of habit. Would a slice of pizza help make up for it? I shake my head. She broke her promise big time. A million slices of pizza isn't going to make up for that. Hop in, she says again. No, I tell her. I'm walking home. Walking helps me think. Not that I really want to think about all the crummy stuff that happened today. How is it possible to have a worse first day of school? After my mom drives away, I hear someone calling my name. Joe! I turn and see Mr. Barnes hurrying to catch up. I was hoping I might run into you, he says. How did it go today? I feel something hard swell up in my throat, and for a minute, I'm scared I might start crying. But I swallow a couple of times and the feeling goes away. It was okay, I guess, I tell him. How do you like Mrs. Beam, he asks. I shrug. She's shorter than me, I say. Mr. Barnes laughs and pulls a pack of sugarless gum out of his pocket. He offers me a piece, but I shake my head. Sugarless gum gives me a headache. How's our old friend Mr. Samreen doing this year? I think about the name Dylan called Mr. Barnes behind his back the day he brought his pink haggy sack to school. A word my mother would wash my mouth out with soap for saying. He's not my friend, I say. And no offense, but I don't think he's your friend either. The world is full of Dylan Samarines, Joe, Mr. Barnes says, unwrapping a piece of gum and putting it into his mouth. The trick is to not let them get to you. 
I wonder if Mr. Barnes has ever seen the look on the face of a zebra who's just stepped into a crocodile's mouth. Thanks for the advice, I say. If you want, I can write it down for you, Mr. Barnes says, pulling a pen out of his pocket. The hard thing swells up in my throat again. Mr. Barnes knows I have trouble remembering things until, unless they're written down. That's okay, I tell him. And by the way, I like your new tie. I wonder if anyone in Mr. Barnes's class this year will memorize his ties the way I did. Mr. Barnes looks at his watch. He says he's sorry he has to run to a faculty meeting, but that I should feel free to hang by his room any time to chat. Hang in there, Joe, he tells me as he walks away. My stomach grumbles. I haven't eaten anything since lunch. I think about my mother's offer to take me out for pizza and get mad at her all over again. How could she do that? Blow me a kiss right in front of everyone. What part of no corny mom stuff does she not understand? Normally, it takes me half an hour to walk home, but I'm not in any hurry today. Mia, my dog, is waiting for me at the door when I finally get there. She's so happy to see me, she falls all over herself, wagging her tail and trying to lick my face. Cut it out, Mimi, I laugh, pushing her away. Your breath smells like liver. Mom has been waiting for me too. One of her cooking magazines is lying open on the couch next to her. I can tell she's been crying, cause her nose is red. What took you so long, Joey? She asks. I was beginning to worry. Can we talk? I don't want to talk, I say. I go into the kitchen, grab a couple of oatmeal cookies out of the jar on the counter, and pour myself a big glass of milk. Mia follows me upstairs to my room. I take off my sweatshirt, toss it on the floor, and shut the door. I'm starving, but I'd rather skip dinner than have to sit across the table from mom after what she did. Chapter 7. Ravi. Later, after my evening shower, Appa comes upstairs to say goodnight. I didn't even have a chance to ask you how your first day of school was, Ravi. Is it true what Parima says? that there are no other Indians in your class? I tell Appa the truth. There is one other, but he's an ABCD. What sort of fellow is he? Abba asks. Funny, I say, and popular. Tell him your IQ is 135 and that you were first batsman on your cricket team at Vidya Mandir. That should impress him well. I don't need to impress him, I say. He already wants to be my friend. There's no harm in showing off a little. You were top of your class at Vidya Mandir. Does your new friend know that? I don't tell Appa that it's Mrs. Bean, not Dylan, who needs convincing. If my parents find out that she suggested I need special help with my English, they will insist on coming to school to complain. When Amma comes in next to say goodnight, she tells me, I'm making vegetable biryani in the morning for you to take for your lunch with cinnamon sticks and coconut milk just the way you like it. Thank you, Amma, I tell her, slipping the postcard I received from Pradmon a few weeks ago between the pages of Bud Not Buddy to save my place. Mrs. Beam only assigned us the first chapter, but I am liking the story very much, so I read up to chapter 8. Don't forget to say your prayers, Raja, Amma reminds me. Then she kisses my forehead and turns out the light. My first day of school in America is over, 
And though it wasn't perfect, I did make a new friend. Not only that, thanks to Appa, I have an idea for how to fix things with Mrs. Beam. She told us that in the morning, we will be starting with math, and that is going to change everything. Chapter 8 Joe At 5 o'clock, Mom comes upstairs to tell me that dinner is almost ready. I made a meatloaf, she says. The recipe is from Bon Appetit, so it ought to be pretty good. My mom is a great cook, and even though I don't want to eat dinner with her, I'm so hungry now I'm actually seeing stars. The phone rings and mom goes to answer it. I hope it isn't dad checking in from the road. The last thing I need is for him to get involved in this whole thing between mom and me. He'd probably just say what he always says. Man up, Joe. The whole house smells of meatloaf. I try to ignore it, but I don't have the willpower to pass it up. I pick up my fork and start eating my dinner as fast as humanly possible. If I make sure my mouth is always full, mom can't expect me to say anything to her. As soon as my plate is clean, I head up to my room to read Bud Not Buddy. Mrs. Beam told us to read the first chapter, but it was only eight pages long, so I decided to keep going. I'm a pretty decent reader when I'm not distracted. Plus, the story is good. It's about this orphan kid named Bud Caldwell, and there's something about the way he talks that cracks me up. Like, instead of saying all of a sudden, he says whoop, zoop, sloop. I just love the way that sounds. Whoop, zoop, sloop. When Mrs. Beam wrote the assignment on the whiteboard, Dylan turned around in his seat and made a joke, calling it pud, not putty. Mrs. Bean didn't hear, but Lucy Mulligan did, and she laughed so hard she almost fell out of her chair. Mrs. Bean gave us another assignment, too. Some corny personal collection project, whatever that is. She didn't write it on the right board with the other homework. Instead, she just told us about it, which means now I can't remember anything she said. I tried to take notes, but she was talking really fast, and then they started mowing the grass under the windows. So the only thing I know is that the project is due on Friday. I wonder if Miss Frost forgot to talk to Mrs. Beam about me. I hear my mom coming up the stairs, so I quickly stash the book under my pillow, roll over on my side, and close my eyes. She knocks a couple of times, then she opens the door a crack. Joe, she whispers, honey, are you awake? Mia is curled up on the bed beside me. And when she sees my mom, she starts wagging her tail, thumping it against my leg like crazy. I lie there like a rock, but I guess mom can tell I'm not really asleep. It won't happen again, Joey. No kisses. I promise. When she told me she'd applied for the job, I told her I thought it was a terrible idea. But she needed the work, and Einstein needed a lunch monitor. So who cares if the only thing I actually used to like about school is ruined now? Nobody, that's who. You won't even know I'm there, she tells me. Yeah, right, I say, then pull the pillow over my head.